the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Thank you, Doc. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. That was Sarita singing Sonny, and of course, Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny tonight. He hosted the Tonight Show. And I want to thank David Lisby for designing that great film opening. And I want to say hello to my director and my technical advisor, the co-creator of BBS Radio in California, Don Newsom. Don, how are you today? Wow, I'm doing just excellent. I truly appreciate being here. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm well, doing excellent. Well, listen, I appreciate it more. And you know, as much as I love to read and as much as I love to write, sometimes I think thoughts are often expressed better in poetry. And I don't just mean love thoughts. I remember back in the early 60s when President Kennedy was still alive, uh, 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 the, uh, my favorite po poet, Robert Frost, was on with Jack Parr. And he told Jack Parr that he had already written his two-line couplet as his obituary on his tombstone. <laughs> so Jack Parr asked him what it was. And so he said, Dear God, please forgive all the little jokes I've played on thee, and I will forgive the great big one that you played on me. Now, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it, too. And I have a tendency sometimes to write Poetry, it just, uh, for no reason whatsoever. So I wrote a little poem today, uh, and for, uh, because I was so pumped and excited because of the guests that we have on. I've wanted, waited for years and years to talk to him, and now he's finally here. But anyway, it's a poem about what's going on in the news, and it's called Kavanaugh, To Be or Not To Be. Well, Judge Kavanaugh is awaiting his appointment to our higher court. There are those attempting desperately or rightly his nomination to abort. Of course, that's a horrible word that drives our right to lifers really, really wild. Saving lives before birth, but in stopping wars that kill more, they are truly, truly mild. The pro-choicers now have a student who says he molested her doing her harm, and I wouldn't be surprised if they find another little girl from kindergarten who says, hey, that guy bit my arm. Remember Clarence Thomas, an adult obvious lech, as testified by pretty Anita Hill. Judge Kavanaugh was just a boy, and Clarence pathetically was appointed still. Our one percenters, politicians, producers, performers, and many presidents are incredibly Lewd. The fuss shouldn't be over the ladies they've molested, though. It's the 99%. It's us. 
that they have forever screwed. <laughs> that, that, that is, that is my, love it. Thank you. That's my hallmark for the day. But anyway, back in, in 1974, when I was uh, doing the news as the critic at large with Tom Snyder, when Tom was offered the Tomorrow Show on the NBC network, they asked me to do a roast of Tom Snyder, which I certainly did. And in the roast, I said, for the years that I've been a cohort of Tom Snyder's, watching his, him as an anchorman, I always got the impression that he thought the news was there to bring you him. Well, this line was picked up by, the, by, by Time magazine, but also what I said, I suggested that our very pretty weather girl, Kelly Lang, be sent to Santiago, Chile, to do the weather report. And the reason for this, just before it was, I believe, September 11th, <laughs> another, another September 11th, okay? There is a 13-minute network news report about Sab Salvador Allende, the socialist democratically elected president of Chile, being murdered. 13 seconds they covered it. So I suggested they send Kelly Lang to do the weather because they gave Kelly Lang two or three minutes to do the weather. And all you have to do is stick your head out the window to see what the weather is. Because if she was in Santiago, maybe she could tell us the truth behind the assassination of Salvador Allende that was instigated by Nixon, Kissinger, and the Central Intelligence Agency. But two days later, I found out there were two young reporters in Washington, D.C. at a small station who did a 90-minute live radio documentary about Allende and played his last broadcast just before he was murdered. You could hear the bombs outside. Since then, this man, uh, this, our guest is one of those brave journalists. Since that time, he's been doing the exact same thing for decades, decades and decades, bravely investigating the news that we never get. Wow. The, other, the other thing that's so amazing about him is that for these decades, he also videotaped thousands of hours of American television. And you can read his amazing articles in American Thinker. He writes for Epoch Times, and you can watch him every week on the Hagman Report. And often he hosts that very show himself. I am delighted and honored to finally be talking to Peter Chaka. Peter, thank you so much for being here. That was the nicest introduction I think anyone has ever given me. And uh, I'm deeply grateful for, uh, for what you said and bringing me on today. Well, thank you, for, Peter, for being here. I apologize. We're going to try to bring John right back in. Oh, he might have lost connection. There we go. Oh, you know, it, it might have, I'm so excited. My hand hit my uh, my computer or something, and something went wrong. I'm, just, I'm sorry. So anyway, Peter, you look fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. So do you, John. Thank you. And it really is an honor to join you. And I mentioned when we had a moment to chat before we went live that I just wanted to start with a little reflection and reminiscence because uh, you and I, this is the first time we're actually meeting and talking in person, one-on-one -on -one via video Skype. But we actually did have a conversation 26 years ago. It was July 21st, 
1992, and you were on KFI AM 640 in Los Angeles on the Tom Likas show, which was being guest hosted by Bill Handel that day. And your purpose there was to uh, describe your documentary on Jim Garrison and the JFK assassination, which the next day would be premiering on pay-per-view television around the United States. And uh, the JFK assassination, I, I had been a JFK assassination buff, you might say, ever since the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, I, I was just uh, so moved by the broadcast that I called in and got on the air and we spoke. And I mentioned on that broadcast that earlier that spring, I had managed to get a question to Dan Rather who was appearing on a San Diego radio station. You remember that period was uh, shortly after Oliver Stone's film JFK had premiered the previous December 20th, 1991. So there was suddenly a renewed interest in getting to the bottom of who killed JFK. So Dan Rather uh, went on a local talk show in San Diego. He wasn't going to take listener calls, but the host... Uh, announced earlier in his show that listeners could call in and uh, pose a question for Dan, and he, the host, would ask him when Rather actually came on live. So I phoned in, got a question in, and I wanted to have Dan comment on how he could have described the Zapruder film, which he was one of the few people to see shortly after it was filmed on November 22nd, 1963. And of course, the rest of us in America didn't get a look at that film until about a decade later, finally. So I wanted to know how Dan Rather could have watched that film and described it to the CBS network audience during that weekend of the assassination coverage as clearly showing that the shots that killed JFK came from the rear, when, of course, looking at the film, it looks exactly the opposite. Well, as you might imagine, he didn't like the question and he kind of stammered, as I recall, and didn't really answer it. So there really wasn't much news there. But that's what you and I discussed uh, 26 years ago. And uh, actually, the, the oh, I should mention this. The next day I ordered up pay-per-view the documentary that you were describing, and it remains the only pay-per-view broadcast I have ever purchased on cable television in my entire life. And when it came out on DVD, on uh, VHS later that year, I bought uh, about oh 10 copies. Here's, here's an original shrink-wrapped version. <laughs> oh Copyrights, the first edition, 1992. And I gave a number of these away to my friends. And uh, I watched it again recently. I have one that's not shrink-wrapped, of course. And uh, you are to be congratulated, John, for one of the finest... Uh, most objective documentaries on the JFK assassination that was ever made. And I'd like to share this anecdote as well, because uh, most Americans, of course, remember you for many things that you've done in your career, but uh, probably foremost is your, uh, co-hosting co and I believe co-creating Real People, the first reality network a, television show. I, uh, Peter, I was the sole creator of Real The sole creator, well... Yes. And I, I mean, kudos to you, John Barber, because you were several decades ahead of your time there, 1979, 1984 on NBC. But 
uh, less well known, which is always I, I've always wondered about, was uh, I believe you were either the co-creator or the creator of a spinoff called Speak Up America, which aired for a limited number of episodes in August and September of 1980. And I became an instant fan of that show. That was actually the first populist reality show in the history of American television. And uh, what I particularly wanted to mention was uh, there were two episodes of that which included uh, interviews with New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. And uh, I believe it must have been the, the films from that that made it into your documentary 12 years later. But I actually had my first VHS tape recorder in 1980. And I taped segments of Speak Up America. And I remember that blank tapes then, blank VHS tapes, cost about $20 each. So I was very careful. I cut out the commercials. I recorded segments of programs. And I still have uh, my original videotape of segments of Speak Up America from 1980. And unfortunately, shortly after uh, those segments aired on, uh, on, on the Kennedy assassination the program disappeared. And I wondered, uh, I, I've always wanted to ask you, what happened to that show? Was that part of the reason that it didn't make it beyond kind of a trial run? Because I thought it was a really interesting live political show, unique in its time, then or now, actually. Peter, I can't tell you. Usually I am speechless. I am almost speechless, but I'm since I'm on the air, I cannot be speechless. But it's, it is absolute serendipity that you and I are talking today and I will rewind, rewind, rewind back to the show when you called in to talk to me about the Garrison tapes. I had been scheduled to be on that CBS uh, local radio show for two hours. When I bought up, brought up the business of Dan Rather, because at the time, and let me put this on pause a second, have you seen Part two of the Garrison Tapes, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. I have not yet, no. I'm looking well, forward to it, though. Well, then I must tell you, if you love the first one, you will more than love the second one because it is the absolute definitive film on the murder of John F. Kennedy because Jim Garrison reveals how and why they the creation of fake news. It is absolutely, it shows you how to solve the crime because it's still an open case in the, uh, uh, in the, in the Justice Department. But let me go back to the radio show because when I did the first documentary, I had offered Dan Rather's agents thousands of dollars in order to sit down and ask him one question. And that question was going to be who was with you in the room when you were shown the Zapruder film? Because the big honcho at CBS was Walter Cronkite. Why did they cho choose just a local reporter, street reporter, to lie? Because it's an obvious lie. Of mm -hmm. course, they, they never responded. When I did the second documentary, which is a huge, huge hit on Amazon and Vimeo, and by the way, the first documentary won the San Sebastian Film Festival Award because it followed on the heels of Oliver's excellent movie, mm -hmm. JFK. I have submitted it to 25 of the top film festivals in the world, 
and everyone has rejected this absolute brilliant film. And as a former film critic, and I do not say this lightly, Peter, it is the most important movie ever made in America. And that is indeed a mouthful because a year before I got real people on the air, I said, I'm going to change the face of American television. This Canadian dropout at 14 years of age is going to change the face of American television with what I call the entertainment of reality. And I did the same thing when I, I accidentally became Jim Garrison's Boswell. Because when I created the AM show, the first morning news show on ABC, I quite accidentally bumped into his book in a bookstore, Heritage of Stone, and called him and tried to book him on the air. And he told me I would never get away with it, but I booked him. We had the number one show in, in the history of Los Angeles television, the AM show. And we took phone calls. It was just a fabulous show. A week after I, I booked him, I was fired and he was canceled. But Peter, I just thought it was show business. I, I thought nothing about it. So now let's get to the business of Speak Up America. I was working 20 hours a day writing nearly all of the hours of the show that you saw. Mm -hmm. It wasn't often the story. It's often the storyteller. And it became when when uh, when I went off the air, I, I, and this is why I was fired why real people eventually went off the air. George Slaughter, who is the owner of the show, you know in television, they don't go to the creators, they go to the owners of the show. The Movie Network, remember that classic? Petty oh, Shack? yes, absolutely. And when I reviewed it, I said, it's the only movie ever made in America that people will go to listen to. It is like a documentary. It is more frightening now and more telling now and more pertinent now than when it first aired in in the 70s. So NBC went to George Slaughter and said, hey, could you do a television show that's sort of a takeoff of uh, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore? So George decided to do that. Uh, one of the hosts was Marjo Gortner. The mm -hmm. other was a good friend of mine, Herb Brooks, who had been the coach of the Olympic hockey team because myself and two other actors had started the celebrity hockey team in LA. So Herb and I became became friends. I was so busy, I couldn't get involved with that show. And George kept coming to me and saying, John, please, I need some help. I need some help. The show's not doing well. And I said, George, I'm up to my neck trying to save real people, okay? You put Peter Billingsley on, which the start of destroying the show, you can't have an 11-year-old kid telling real people stories, okay? We were constantly battling ever since he put them on. But I read accidentally that the House Select Committee had concluded four shots had been fired. Jim and I had only talked on the phone a couple of times. We talked about uh, Watergate. We talked about the Vietnam War. As a matter of fact, on the Tonight Show, I think I said that one of the lines I said was just an observation was Watergate one of, is an event that may have put America on the brink of democracy, which got a huge hand. And Jim Garrison called and said, hey, can I quote you? Can I quote you? I called him again, first time in 10 years. And I said, do you feel vindicated? He said, John, I feel like a blind man who's gotten a small trophy in a dark room. Only I know I got it. I said, well, you must be swamped with calls. He said, what do you mean? I said, Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley and Peter Jennings and all these people. And he said, John, you're the only person who's called me. And I couldn't believe it. 
And I said, well, I'm going to tell your story. He says, no, I have not told my story in 10 years. I'm not going to tell it. I've got no place to tell it. I said, I have a place to tell it. Speak up America. I said, I'm going to come down there, do some real people's stories of performers on the streets, and you and I are going to talk. He said, okay. So I went into George, and I said, listen, I will do this story of Mr. Garrison for nothing. I won't take a writer credit, director credit, performer credit. This man needs to have his story told. So he said, okay, Peter, I spent three and a half of the most amazing, frightening, unbelievable, thrilling American Frank Capra hours in my whole life talking to Mr. Garrison. I came back, there was so much material, it had to be a two-parter. And the first part, this is the first time he's on network television at eight o'clock at night. And he opens up, as you say, by saying Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with the assassination. Now, you know, I am not religious, but I think there's something metaphysical that goes on in the world because before that aired, you could not get into the studio. It was, oh, the president or the pope were visiting. I mean, people with standing room only. They were spellbound with Garrison. And so we did the first part. People could not wait for the second part. This is what happened with the second part. When I did the interview with them, I asked him how many shooters there were. And he said, John, there were probably three teams, two in the front, one in the back. Nobody, nobody in the uh, building, uh, the book depository where they pre-deposited the Patsy. It was probably the Daltex building. Usually there are two teams of two, but in this case, they probably had three because it's their most important kill. They're killing the president of the United States, which was called Operation Jewels or something with the CIA when they went around the world killing people like Yendi. You had to have somebody on the phone. And then I said to him, Mr. Garrison, how many people, when did they start this? And how many people do you think actually knew he was going to be murdered in Dilly Plaza? So he said it started the day that he didn't supply air cover to uh, the Bay of Pigs. That's when the planning started. And he said there were two or three patsies available, not just Lee Harvey Oswald. And then he said it's on a need-to-know basis. He He said about 32. So anyway, I edit the story together. And I play it for George Slaughter and our crew. These people were literally glued to the set, listening to these facts. And, and the next day, it was going to be on as part two on Speak Up America. There were people in the hallway trying to get into the building. I had to go home because I was having a house built, and so I was going to watch the show at home. Marja Gartner was assigned by me to ask the question. When the question came up in the show on the air, Marja Gartner says, Mr. Garrison, how many shooters were there in Dealey Plaza? George Slaughter had taken Donna Cantor, my field producer, at midnight into the editing room, re-edited my story so that when Marjo asked that question, how many shooters were there in Dealey Plaza? He cuts in 32. I'm sitting at home and I start screaming at the television set. What has he done? What has he done? What has he done? The phone rings and it's Slaughter telling me what an ignoramus and what a fool 
Jim Garrison is. And I start screaming at him that he's the fool and that I hope that Garrison would sue him because he would own him and he would own NBC and he would get more time than he got when Walter Sheridan tried to sabotage him in that hour documentary that resulted in him getting 11 o'clock airtime on NBC. And as a matter of fact, that is why we no longer have a fairness doctrine because they couldn't have people like Jim Garrison telling the truth. Well, I was sobbing. I smashed on the phone and I was lucky. In those days, we didn't have cell phones. We had answering machines. And guess who I had? I had George Slaughter on the answering machine saying that he'd done this to sabotage Garrison. I called Mr. Garrison and I'm sobbing. I've never cried like that in my entire life. And he told me to calm down. He was so peaceful. I told him, I don't understand. I don't know what happened. I had nothing to do with it. And he said, John, I'm used to it. I said, well, I have this tape. You can now sue. You'll own them. He said, John, if I spent all my time in a courtroom for every time they maligned me, they disparaged me illegally, I'd never see my family. I would never, I'd never get into court. He said, we love your show. Just send me a real people t-shirt. He said, by the way, I'll give you the name of the fake Oswald who's in prison back east. You go and he'll tell you his story if you give him a real people t-shirt. He had a wonderful sense of humor. So anyway, the next day, I almost physically assaulted George Slaughter. It was a screaming fight in the hallway. Donna Cantor showed up and she's sobbing, crying that she's so sorry. She's so sorry. Well, of course, by that time, not only was that show over, so was Real People, because I was fired from my own show. And Real People was canceled a month after I was fired. But George is a very smart businessman, as all these mega millionaires are. He had a two-year deal with NBC Pay or Play. So that's, that's that. All of this stuff is in part two. And as soon as we're off the air, I'm going to send you a free link to it. You will be absolutely staggered because you will not be able to watch this film just one time, Peter. And I can't tell you, you know, I said to you that I, I am not religious, I'm not a believer, but I, there's something metaphysical going on. This film and Jim Garrison's story is actually blessed. Because people came out of nowhere when I announced that I was going to do this and contributed money and time and talents. You wouldn't believe the help that I got. I could, and all of these stories, or many of these stories, are in my book. I have a, uh, my autobiography is finally coming out, and it's called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. And the reason this title came about, when Jim and I talked in 1970, he said to me, John, it is 1970, and you know that the Harris Poll says that over 68% of all Americans do not believe Oswald did it or acted alone, and yet only 23% want a real investigation. He says, what does that tell you about Americans? Without missing a beat, I don't know where it came from, Peter. I said, Mr. Garrison, what it says to me is, I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat in the car or what they did on the pool table or the back alley or what they did in the bedroom, but don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, <laughs> he howled. He said, my God, that's a book. 
And he used to quote it all the time. And I forgot about it until I, I've spent five years putting these story, all of these stories down. When I tell you it is going to be, and I repeat, the best book about anybody who was ever in show business. The best to me was Ben Hicks, A Child of the Century. Just a brilliant, brilliant book. This, I think, will replace it because it starts out like David Copperfield and Angela's Ashes, this guy that's arrested all the time. He's deported twice from the United States, ends up changing the face of American television, accidentally becoming Garrison's Boswell. And for five years, four and a half years, is a private writer for Frank Sinatra, the greatest performer in America. And Peter, it was all accidental. It was all unplanned. I believe the best things that happen in life happen by accident, where the disasters are those things that are well planned. And, you know, I had I had planned on talking to you so much about your incredible work and your background. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was if you were taping American television again today, is there anything worth taping? So I'm sorry that I've talked so much, but you can see you've totally inspired me. I'm John, also- I'm going to have to have this uh, conversation, this broadcast transcribed, because I think what you have just shared in such amazing detail and recall is is a chapter in American media and American history that is just mind-boggling. And I think I'm going to have to do an article or two based on our conversation tonight, just uh, quoting you and what you said, what I remember about Speak Up America. And I'm so happy to hear you say that you have a book coming out, which is going to report on a lot of these uh, things in your past. It, it's just, it's awesome. I, I, I'm, I'm speechless now. This has just been... Uh, I will say I will say that's incredible. No pun intended. <laughs> that's but, funny because because we know I, who was there first. <laughs> I, I sued. That's incredible because I first took the show. It was called National Graffiti when I first took it to ABC. Uh, I was working with Danny Arnold, who was a co-creator of Barney Miller, and my son's godfather was the producer of the show. And I hired or wanted to hire. As my Byron Allen, I wanted to hire Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor at the time was in uh, a Los Angeles County Jail, first of all, because he punched out an NBC executive because the executive edited out a part of one of his specials that Richie absolutely loved. And then, of course, the the uh, Treasury Department and, and the IRS were waiting in the foyer for him to be released because they wanted to get him on income tax evasion. So he was persona non grata in Hollywood. And I named names. The guy who was head of programming at the time was a guy named Lou Ehrlich. And when I told him, I want my Richie, I want my, uh, my co-host to be Richie Pryor, he leaned over the desk and he said, that nigger is not getting on this network. And of course, Richie went, I knew because Richie could put 5,000 people in, in seats mm-hmm. and pay big money to it. I knew, and eventually became the biggest star in the world, and justifiably so. But in I, one one person I almost had on the show so I could ask this question, and how easy it is. We have all heard President, talk, uh, President Trump talking about fake news, which started during the campaign with those other dirty dozen Republicans out there. 
that's what prompted me to go back and do part two because Garrison talked all the time about the media. At the time I interviewed him, I when I for real people, I was getting twenty thousand dollars an hour and ten thousand dollars for a rerun. So I had no interest in attacking the media that was paying me so well. Besides, it was just a great story. It was a Frank Capra story with really not a not a ha- not a happy not a happy ending. So anyway, that's what prompted me to do part two. But I tried to get and he, he's asked to come back on the show, try to get Roger Stone because Roger had been a close friend and advisor to President Trump. This business of fake news. You see it in the documentary. When John Kennedy was murdered, a company could only own five television or five radio Mm -hmm. stations or five newspapers. The worst president in history, Bill Clinton, signed the Communications Act. Now 95% of it, as you well know and have said many times, is in the hands of six corporations. Mm. Well, if President Trump wants to inform America, and Thomas Jefferson said you cannot have a functioning democracy unless you have an informed citizenry. If he wants to inform the citizenry, it's easy to reverse the Communications Act. It is a monopoly for these people to own our media. They did it with AT&T. They did it with the movie studios. They could do it again. And I didn't get a chance to ask Roger that because he missed the plane and, and and he and he missed it. But at the end of the film, Garrison also said to me, this is September 5th. It's amazing how you remember dates. I remember this one, September 5th, 1981. When I sat with Mr. Garrison, he gave me a list of people who were alive who should be arrested and questioned in the murder of John Kennedy. And a lot of them had died by this time. It's mm-hmm. 2018. And I'm doing this documentary, but some are still alive. So at the end of the film, I put together a wanted poster of those alive who should still be questioned. And guess who is number one? Dan Rather. And then Bill Moyers. Bill Moyers was LBJ's press aide who had the bubble removed after a rainy morning in Dallas. And of course, the other one, one of the others is President Barack Obama, who's now over at Netflix, one of the executives there, because he had eight years to sign executive orders to get all those files released. The reason the CIA is not releasing the files, you you know, because you're really smart. They don't leave around blueprints saying this is how we killed JFK. It's all in code. What they don't want released are Jim Garrison's files. Mm-hmm. One month after I went, uh, I, I set up a, a, a GoFundMe account to do the movie, a man in Las Vegas, without whom I could never have finished my documentary, sent me 67 boxes, all of uh, all of Jim Garrison's files that went to the House Select Committee. They named names, the shooters, the amount of money paid, everything. They're the files that they don't want released, and they'll never be released. So... That that's that's where we are, and I I am I am almost speechless now, and staggered and so grateful to you for just showing up accidentally on my show. Well, likewise, I, I I'm I'm just in awe listening to you recounting this uh, essential history. the The JFK assassination in my life uh, was a turning point. I was a freshman in high school 
when President Kennedy was assassinated. And I was already interested in the news. I had become a news and current affairs junkie when I was in grade school. I want to thank you all for tuning in to listen to to look at our little undertaking here on BBS Radio, John Barber's World. And if you want to hear it again or look at it again, go to BBS Radio Archives, John Barber's World, or you can go to my site, YouTube forward slash johnbarbersworld.com. Not only are these shows archived, but you will find highlights and excerpts from my 40 years in television and show business. Fabulous stories, some dramatic, some funny, some truly interesting, and a few outrageous mad-as-hell rants, which I certainly enjoyed doing. You will also see the second-best documentary ever made about anybody in show business. It's called Ernie Kovacs Television's Original Genius. By far the best film ever made about somebody in show business was Searching for Sugar Man, which won an Oscar a few years ago. But most importantly to me, you will find the links to what I believe is the most important movie ever made in America. It's a runaway hit on Amazon, thanks to you, and on Vimeo. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. But also free on this site, the original Garrison Tapes, The Last Word in the Assassination, The Last Word in the Garrison Tapes. And if you are truly, truly interested in the subject, go to Len Osanic's Black Op Radio, 50 Reasons for 50 Seasons. It's a fabulous undertaking, and you should not miss it. This film would not exist on this site if it were not first for George Knapp, who saved it from obscurity. It was a runaway hit around the world, but blocked here. He saw it one day, put me on coast to coast, and saved it. But it's saved for history and saved for you by David Lisby. David Lisby was a young man who was a fan of the film, showed up at my house one day, said, I'm going to build you a site so the world and history can have this film and excerpts from your work. That was nine years ago. For nine years, he's been maintaining this site, and now he does it from Thailand, where he's an American expatriate. So I cannot thank David enough, and you should be thanking him also. Also, I want to thank Mike Kim, the producer of this show. I've never met him, but he finds me the most fabulous and the most interesting guest anybody could ever have. And of course, I could not be doing the show if it weren't for the founders of BBS, Doug and Don Newsom. But again, the one I really want to thank, and I love all of the people I'm thanking, is my son Christopher. Christopher Ernest Barber is his name, and you can see it twice on the credits of Criminal Minds. He's one of the co-executive producers and one of the writers. And he is by far the greatest thing that I ever helped to produce. And now back to my show. Welcome back. Peter, please continue now. You were a youngster and it didn't sit well, the assassination. Right. The JFK assassination, November 22nd, 1963. I was a freshman in high school. Uh, it was a shock, but uh, I, I'm not going to say that I saw through the coverage as fake news, but it just didn't seem right to me. So I was ripe for the first books 
and talk radio shows actually of the period 1964 after the Warren report came out 65 66 uh, to really start to pay attention to the critics of the Warren Commission and the party line story of the JFK assassination and I mentioned talk radio and one of the uh, pioneers of that medium was Barry Farber who is still with us at age 88 and is still doing a Monday through Friday internet talk show now and I recently became acquainted with Barry and I I have old reel-to-reel tapes I recorded off of the radio when he was on WORAM in New York in the mid-60s doing programs on the JFK assassination so it's pioneers like Barry Farber and like you John who have did did you ever listen to Mae Russell oh of course of course I was I was a junkie. She was to the airways what Mark Lane was to books and print. She was just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I should point out, John, that uh, I am committed to doing the Hagman report. And I thought it was going to be I thought we were going till 35 after. And I'm getting a, a Skype call from them now. So I'm going to have to conclude my part in this pretty soon now. But uh, I, I, I hope that we can reconvene at some point. Oh, hey, if, listen, you will be back here as often as you are almost <laughs> on the Hagman Report. OK, so go ahead. Folks can watch you now. On When will you be on the Hagman Report? What well, time? As, soon, as soon as I sign off here, I'm scheduled to start a little bit early with them. Usually I'm on every Monday night from uh, 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern time. So it doesn't conflict with your program when you're on the other Monday. Okay, folks, at six o'clock, turn over to tune into the Hagman Report and watch Peter. Peter, you and I are going to do this again and often. And as soon as I get off, I'm going to send you the film. And by the way, I was on the Hagman Report about uh, John Robertson booked me on about. Yes, in May. Yeah, I heard that. It was after Doug called me thanking me for making part two. So I'm stunned that you haven't seen it. So you're going to get part two. And thank you. Thank you so much. And Joe, thank you for being here. I'm sorry for the confusion. And Joe, you and I are going to talk now. I want you to talk a little bit about what you heard Peter talking about. And then I want you to get into some of your lead stories in News Vandal. Any comments you might have on my little Hallmark greeting about... uh, Kavanaugh. Well, why don't we start with the Hallmark reading? Because the poem had the perfect punchline at the end, which is who's getting screwed the most out of all of this? It's us by corporations, right? And the reason I bring that up is because Kavanaugh is sort of this Frankenstein monster that was constructed by the Federalist Society and the Koch brothers and the Heritage Foundation to do what? To get on the Supreme Court and be part of a five to four voting block that could effectively veto anything that Congress does over the next 15 to 20 years to curtail corporate power, to curtail the use of money in politics, to curtail environmental and financial regulations, and to curtail the regulation of the media. That is really the whole point of Kavanaugh's candidacy. Now, I listened to about 75% of his hearings, and he was like a cipher. He was you could have put anything into the empty vessel of Kavanaugh and gleaned whatever you wanted because he didn't answer any questions except for the questions about things like Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education 
he would make comments about those. He would say, oh, yes, you know, racism bad. No, no doubt about it. But when he was asked about other things, about corporate law, about Roe v. Wade, he said, well, you know, I just want to follow the tradition of other previous candidates, uh, nominees, and I'm not going to answer those questions. So he obviously. You mean he actually said, I will not answer those questions? Yes, because he said, he said, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't answer questions and Kagan didn't answer questions. It's a longstanding tradition now for us to not answer questions about cases that could come before the, come before the court sometime in the future. And Donald Trump and Donald Trump became president without showing his tax return. Well, exactly. And, you know, there is a little symmetry here because, you know, some people might glean that what's happening to Kavanaugh now is actually similar to what happened to Judge Bork. And at the time, I was opposed to Borking because I generally feel that a president has wide latitude to put people on the court when they've been uh, elected president. That's what you get. You elect somebody and you kind of get the whole package. That's kind of how I've always thought about it. But at the time, one of the things that got in Bork's way was his role in uh, in Nixon's administration in trying to protect Nixon during the Saturday Night Massacre. Oh, that's right. So what's interesting is, is that Bork was being nominated, a guy who was interested in protecting executive power in 1987, right? This is the, this is the heat of, uh, of um, uh, after 1987, after the Iran-Contra thing broke, this is in the heat of Iran-Contra happening. And so now you have, the, you have another president who's in his own legal tra- travails, and here is Kavanaugh, who is an executive privileged kind of guy who thinks that the executive should be protected at all costs, which he participated in writing legal memos during the Bush administration about torture. So there's this symmetry that in these two things. Ultimately, I think there's a point at which the Republicans are going to want to cut bait on this thing, because now on Monday, we're going to have a hearing. And just imagine if you're the GOP, you're facing this potential blue wave. It's dominated by female anger. And you're going to have Orrin Hatch, this ancient fossil up there wagging his finger at a woman who's claiming that she was raped. And him saying, which he said today, I think she's a little mixed up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's going to go over like the Hindenburg. That should do really well. So I, I, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch because there are a lot of intersectional politics involved in this, in addition to which there's a little maybe silver lining. If Kavanaugh gets pulled, and already I'm starting to see in some of the political media that people in the White House are sort of floating trial balloons of maybe it, it, we could withdraw him. Maybe that's a possibility, which is a signal to me that they're already considering it as a as a poss- as a significant possibility that if you withdraw Kavanaugh and you blame it on the Democrats as a smear job, then you can maybe stoke your evangelical base to show up because they are demoralized right now. They can show up and maybe save the Senate, because right now the latest polls have the Democrats ahead in Tennessee and Arizona which would be a huge shift in the Senate for Tennessee and Arizona to send Democrats uh, uh, to the, to the, for Tennessee and Arizona to send Democrats to the Senate. And of course you have Beto O'Rourke who is driving Ted Cruz so batty that Ted Cruz is actually uh, proposing to voters that, that if you elect Beto O'Rourke, he might try to outlaw barbecue. <laughs> that's real. That's true. <laughs> 
you you can't write this stuff. You can't write it. It's you so can, it's so amazing. It's so you perfect. Can, you can just record it. Oh my God! I'm telling you, every time Congress and the Senate meet, or maybe when President Truman or anybody speaks. We should just have a laugh track. No, it is. It's, it's a total comedy show. And, you know, I mean, the other thing is, is that the Democrats don't look like heroes here either. Right. Oh, I mean, no. the way they the way that this thing was held back and then somebody leaked it out. Um, uh, Listen, the, Joe, I said this. I said this two years ago. I said if baseball and the World Series was at all like our presidential campaigns, the two worst teams would be playing in the World Series. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just horrible. And if all of the things happen, supposing Kavanaugh gets in and he has all the things that you say that the Koch brothers and the corporations want him to do, how is it possible that America could possibly survive? It couldn't. It would well, collapse. Well, no, I think it. I don't think it's that dire. I think it would just continue down the course that it's moving. And I think that there is a an element to all of this. I think there's an in the Trump presidency for the GOP establishment, which has been which got behind Donald Trump's president presidency as soon as he won. Right. I mean, they were all there. They piled right in. They got their tax cut. They got the Iran nuclear deal uh, next. And they just want to get this Supreme Court thing. And once they get the Supreme Court thing, they feel like they've got a bulwark against future efforts to curtail corporate power. But ultimately, we're already heading down that road. And, you know, the Koch brothers have this thing called Alex, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they've been writing these kinds of legislative initiatives and just handing them over to state legislators all around the country. And they've been installed as as basically sort of corporately branded law in, in many of the states of the country. So. There is a long unwinding to come if you ever want to have a re-regulatory effort that attempts to curtail the power of monopoly. We have monopolies emerging in pharmaceutical industry. We have monopolies that have happened in the airline industry. We have monopolies that have happened in the defense industry. We have monopolies that have obviously happened in the media, which you were talking with, talking at length uh, at the beginning of the show about. And how we get there, I'm not sure. The thing that really- In, 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 in the questions that went to Kavanaugh, was the question of why is it that the Supreme Court before ruled that corporations are people? And why is it that the Supreme Court ruled money is actually free speech? That that was one of those things that he didn't want to talk about. Because, oh because that could be a future case before. So this, if you think about it, it's the perfect answer. Almost anything that you ask him about he can't talk about because there is a possibility that it will be a case before the, the court at some point. So, oh, you know, I, I must say, I hate to break in on you. What a powerful uh, uh, program. I mean, the last two questions, I'd love to hear the answers to those. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure JP could answer them too. But uh, we've got about two minutes left in the program. Okay, well, with two minutes, John, I noticed that last week you saw the story that I posted on the rundown about Las Vegas maybe being at the leading edge, a canary in the coal mine of another crash. Yes. yes. Well, there is this story, the headline, happy days, record low 12 percent worried about the economy. Great time to get a job. So I looked at the poll 
And yes, 12% worried about the economy, and that's right now. Guess what the previous two low points were for people worried about the economy? Only 13% in 1999, right before the tech bubble crash. And then in 2007, 16% right before the housing bubble crash. As you look at this graph, the three times when the, when the people have felt the best about the economy were the years right before the bubble exploded. Well, I must tell you that things are not going well in Las Vegas at all. Uh, you know, I play in this uh, floating uh, a golf group, a pot game. We play two or three times a week, and nearly everyone who plays is a dealer working at these places. Their salaries have been cut. Their tips have been cut. Roommates are at their lowest ever in order to get people in town. And businesses, indeed, are not doing well in Las Vegas. So this hit, this economic hit that's hitting Las We've Vegas. We've got about 60 me. seconds left. Sorry about that. 60 seconds left. Okay, thank you. This economic hit that is happening in Las Vegas, Joe, I do not feel, will be staying in Las Vegas. No, it's not. The, the bubble is going to crash, and I actually think we just watched a pump-and-dump scam. Cut taxes, use the money to, for buybacks, run up the market, blow the market again, put your short sales in, make money on the crash, and then when the bailout comes, you use that to buy up assets again. There is, it'll be the fourth time in 30 years they've run it. Oh, it, it does not look good. Anyway, it always... Sounds good when I get to talk to you. And where can people see you next? Uh, I will be with Ocelli tomorrow night at 6 o'clock for the full hour and then back here in two weeks and go to newsvandal.com and get the rundown and, uh, you know, get your daily dose. Thanks well, for having me on again, John. It was well, uh, I couldn't do the show and would never do the show without you, Joe. And uh, as I said, it's amazing. On Facebook the other day, I just said casually, you know, uh, the, the most success, the easiest way to get to su be successful in America is to have an open mind and a closed mouth. But to <laughs> me, success is talking to Joe and people like Peter Chalka. All of you have a wonderful, wonderful evening, and Joe and I will see you in two weeks. Bye now. <laughs> Sunny one shines so sincere Sunny one so true